0: Thank you Jacob, and yeah, uh, the mic is kind of quiet, it's a small room, it's more than anything for the camera, for the recording, Uh, but if you want it louder, just give Jacob a dirty look at the back of the room. Now I want to thank him, my good friend, I was the best man at his wedding, Uh, and so I guess that just gives him the ability to give any topic, and so of all the topics I was able to speak on this summer, I get to talk about death, dying, heaven, and hell. And so, thank you, Jacob. Very kind of you. Uh, But that's not quite exactly what it is. The creedal statement, uh, the belief that many people hold, in which we're going to be speaking on, is good people go to heaven when they die. So in preparing for tonight's discussion, it was interesting to learn that the majority of people, whether or not they confess a Christian faith, do adhere to some sort of belief or desire for the afterlife. In 2015, uh, the uh, Canadian Angus Reid survey went out, and though it wasn't quite definitive about what they believed, 75% of Canadians did not dismiss that life after death was, in fact, a possibility. Likewise, a 2014 Pew Research survey determined that 75% of Americans uh, believed in heaven, while 58% believed in hell. Now what was particularly interesting about these statistics was that it wasn't just the Christian people influencing the study, in fact it wasn't even just the religious people who were taking it. Of all those people who had no religious affiliation, desired nothing more than just to say religion could be helpful, 50% of them said they believed in heaven. So while our population may not be completely sure about the specifics about what happens when we die, it is safe to say that the majority of people in North America, the majority of people in our communities hope for something more, hope for something when we die. And I think that's why we hear the phrase or see the posts on Facebook if somebody passes away, oh, they're in a better place now, or you know what? What? They're, they're, they're no longer in pain, they're in, they're in some kind of better reality. Even by those people who aren't Christians. Now you could say that this is the reflection of God in everyone, that everyone is inclined towards God in some way or another, and so that there is this other presence, this other understanding having been made in him, his image, that we have a deep self-subconsciousness of God's reality, Or you could be a bit more cynical and say that this desire for eternal life exists because our culture has a bit of a fundamental issue with the topic of death and dying, which is why we have Botox for people as young as 18, and why we segregate the elderly population from our society. For whatever reason it is, we have a population that at least wants to believe in life after death. So the question is, how would a non-believer, someone who doesn't proclaim Christ as the Lord and Savior, determine one's eternal status? How would they decide who goes to heaven? And I think that's where we get our creedal statement. Good people go to heaven. So most people wouldn't believe that it's dumb luck or a random draw. Um, and I don't think I would really want to live in a world that would be that way, and many people wouldn't either. So This study, in particular, the American Pew Institute, defined heaven as this. It's a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. That's generally the consensus of North Americans about what heaven is. And hell, hell is a place where people who have led bad lives without being sorry are eternally punished. And so generally speaking, this has become the measure of whether or not someone goes to heaven. And I can't really think of too many other ways in which our society would define heaven or define the the categoristic or the reason why they would get there. Our Western world, our legal system, our criminal justice system, and even more recent times, our political correctness, all are products of a system on morality, the rightness and the wrongness of any one action. Now, we could talk all night about how we got to that conclusion. My undergraduate degree was pretty useless until writing this talk. I studied the uh, philosophy of law. And so I spent three years of my life studying why society has developed in such a way that it has. And the grand conclusion is nobody really knows. And we're here today just to try to figure it all out. And so you could believe in Kant's elevation of reason, or follow Locke and Hobbes' uh, theories, or uh, adhere to hedonism, and whatever feels best is right and good. Whatever the way it is, our world fundamentally operates with the rightness and wrongness of something, a moral world. We, We distinguish things in this way. So this is why society has resolved to believe the creedal statement we have. It's good people go to heaven when they die, because they have really no other categorization, no other way to determine people's afterlife. Humanity generally desires life after death, as we saw in the surveys, and the only way to determine how we get there is to look at their goodness or their badness. Now, do we have any TV show fans in the room? Anybody who likes TV? Cameron, I know as a teacher you got a lot on the go right now, so TV's up up there. So, this is a clip from a show I I watched a couple years ago. It's called The Good Place. It's based off of the the idea of an afterlife, and the good people end up in the good place, and the bad people don't. But here's a little clip that I think captures this idea that good people go to heaven. So, this is the main feed. Every action by every human on Earth is recorded and then sent here to be assigned a point value based on the absolute moral worth of that action. For example, a couple in Osaka, Japan, just decided to have a destination wedding, negative 1,200 points. Oh, and it's a destination theme wedding, negative 4,300. The theme's Lord of the Rings. They're basically doomed. (laughs) <laughs> it was hard to hear. It was coming out of my laptop. It's just too bad, but it's it's a spoof on what is good, what is right, what is worthy to get into heaven. But if we actually look at the this statement um, that good people go to heaven when they die, there's a few fundamental issues we come to along the way. Um, the first is what I would call the relativist dilemma. The statement presupposes that there is an objective truth, a concrete morality, which measures any action's goodness. We, however, live in a society that says your truth is the truth. And so, if that's the case, you can live your life as well as you'd like to live, but Joe Schmo, who lives down the road, may think your action's abhorrent, and then you're left with the dilemma, oh, whose truth is determining when you're getting to heaven? So it appears then that if we hold tightly to this relativist, your truth is the truth, then we give up this desire for heaven because the two can't really coexist. Without any consistent measure for entry into heaven, it appears we conclude that everyone, by their own measure, can get there. And although a culture appears to desire a kind of afterlife, our dismissal of it, especially more and more in recent years, appears to be self-defeating. But more than anything, before the relativist problem, putting aside all that, let's suppose society did come to a unified conclusion that there was some universal truth, that there was an intrinsic code of good, right living. And I'll ask you to take a step further. Imagine that all of society everybody you knew ended up with the revelation of god himself knowing what he determined as good and right that they discovered god's good and perfect will could humans after all that with the knowledge of the goodness what is right and wrong in god's eyes could they then get to heaven that's the question but the problem is the answer remains no Humans are fundamentally flawed creatures, and our hearts are inclined towards what is evil in God's sight. Scripture, the Christian faith, we profess that we are enslaved to sin. By our own strength, as hard as we may try, we will never be good enough to do the good things to tip the scales. The Apostle Paul, in describing our condition in Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, says this, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. me. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of the vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are fully cursing and bitterness, are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul, when he's writing this, is taking uh, sections of the Old Testament to draw this grand conclusion as he's writing uh, Romans, which is really the book which outlines the entire Christian faith. In Jeremiah 7, 9, it describes the human heart as deceitful above uh, all things and beyond cure. Now, this total depravity of man doesn't mean that humans are wicked, or are, are as wicked or sinful as they could possibly be. Nor does it mean that man is without a conscience or without a sense of right or wrong. Um, and I think it's true that for each of us, we may think, yes, we're totally... Sinful, I get it, but there's way worse people in this world. We can kind of play that game, can't we? So it's true, we aren't utterly depraved, but we are totally depraved. There's a small distinction, it's hard to really wrap our mind around. But one theologian, John Calvin, had this to say, and I think it helps determine, or it helps make sense of this dilemma. Righteousness can't come from ourselves since even our best works are marred by sin. Yes, we may do good things, we may have an idea of what is good, but at the end of the day, as Calvin says, everything is marred by our sinful nature. Ever since sin entered the world, we were under its power. And I think the Apostle Paul captures total depravity best in Romans 7, verses 14 to 20. Even in light of knowing what was good, knowing the objective moral code, again, even if society knew exactly what was right and wrong, this is the conclusion that Paul comes to. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. I really love Paul sometimes, but sometimes he's terribly confusing. But bear with me. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not I, for I, do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. It's, I think, purposely confusing. Paul's like, oh my goodness. I know what is right, but I don't do it. But why am I not doing what I know I'm supposed to do? And that's, the, that's the heart of the issue. At the heart of the Christian or the, the human life is our utter depravity. We're totally depraved. We don't we, even in knowing what we're supposed to do, we are left hopelessly confused. So therefore even if society knew the truth of God's moral code and even as believers in understanding God's best and perfect will we still fall short. Our sinful nature is so very potent. It's overwhelming when we try to act on our own strength. Well, the the line, all truth is God's truth, I think has been horribly misused throughout history. I believe it rings true here. Whether humanity wants to accept it or not, whether our colleagues, whether our communities want to accept it, each and every one, um, is utterly depraved. We are totally enslaved to sin. And we decide for ourselves each day what is right and good instead of looking towards the Lord. And I think if people actually examine their heart, they might come to that conclusion. I think if people pause long enough from the distractions of the day-to-day life, um, they would come to some conclusion But it might be a little naive that I think humans are that smart. Uh, Maybe they don't actually have any ability to come to that conclusion. Uh, And perhaps sin itself covers their eyes from learning the real truth, the real heart condition. And so, as a side point, I think it's important to note that the only revelation of truth comes from God's word. And that's why we are called to preach the word. And we need to continue to do so. But above and beyond all of these uh, fallible conclusions, both the relativist dilemma, when you don't hold any one truth, um, and the inescapable problem of sin, I think the main trouble with the notion good people go to heaven when they die is that our entire conversation is based on a faulty starting point we were never made simply to live good and moral lives. Our world, our society was never made with the purpose of being just good enough to get to heaven or just not bad enough to go to hell. We were made to be in relationship with the living God to live lives that worship him and enjoy him forever. Colossians 1.6 says this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We were created not to live moral lives, not just to be good people. We were created for God's pleasure. One article I read in preparing for this talk said this, God is a personal being, and it gives him pleasure to have other beings he can have a genuine relationship with. So ultimately, we need to take a step back, and instead of asking the question, what's my, my purpose for my day, am I supposed to act this way or act this way, We need to ask the precursory question. We need to ask the question that comes before even that. And it's the question, why am I here? It's a subtle distinction, but we must fundamentally realize that God created us not just to be moral beings. Rather, he created us to love him and be in relationship with him. And here's the beautiful thing. If we begin from this starting point, the starting point which realizes our created purpose, the other questions get answered along the way. The problem of sin is answered. We were never meant to live life on our own. We were meant to live under the kingship of God. The problem of sin is remedied when we accept that through sin, and our own free will, our relationship with God was broken. Instead of worshiping the Lord, we chose to make ourselves the God of our lives. But, and I think almost everyone in this room would know that, but by believing that Christ died on the cross to take on the punishment of death we deserve, the curse of sin is removed, and instead we are given the righteousness of Christ. And in this righteousness, having been given this new life, we will inevitably live moral lives. We will end up living the way God has called us to live. And much more than that, beyond trying to outweigh the balance, live a life that is better than not bad, we're invited to live lives on mission and with a greater purpose so we're no no longer enslaved to sin, and we're able to participate in God's great redemption story, which has been taking place since the beginning of time. We are invited to partake in His mission, to love the Lord, enjoy Him and His good gifts, and to be His vessel, such that others may come to experience the freedom and the eternal life both here and in the life to come. This gift is much more profound than any temporal satisfaction. It's much more purposeful than living lives that simply work to outweigh the bad with the good. This life we are offered through Christ is the life we were created to live. And what a gift it is, a gift that nothing by our own strength, by no merit of our own, Christ has given his son such that we can enter into this relationship with him. And so to return once again to our good friend Paul, this verse is slightly less confusing, but we'll give it a we'll give it a go. Romans 8 verses 1 to 4. It says this. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus. who do not live according to the flesh, but now according to the spirit. So to bring this back to the question of do good people go to heaven, the problem with that question or the yeah, the problem with that question is that we were made for much more than just that. We were made for more than just moral lives. We were made for the Lord's pleasure and to be in relationship with him. And thanks to Christ, we are able to live into his eternal purposes for our lives. And if you're still wondering about the question, after all I've said, about whether or not good people go to heaven, and I invite you to do some homework this week and read... John 3 and 4, two chapters. And in these chapters, Jesus himself witnesses to two different people, very vastly different people, in the Pharisee Nicodemus, the righteous of righteous, who had done everything right, who had followed the laws. And he also meets the Samaritan woman caught in adultery, who, in her shame... Felt though she was not enough. And the answer to the question of how do I get eternal life is the same for both of them. To become in Christ. To accept that He created us for much more than living good or bad lives. We were created to be in relationship with Him. And that in and through that, yes, our lives are transformed, but it's much more deep, it's much more profound than just trying to balance the scales. And so the invitation for all of us this week, whether or not we follow the Lord, is to truly embrace what it means to be in Christ, what it means to experience life and life to the full as he has prepared for us. So let's just close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you Uh, We thank you for your word. And though Paul is sometimes confusing, the point is well communicated. God, we are marred by sin. As much as we try and as much as we do good works, we are still, um, we still fall short. And it's only through your Holy Spirit it is only through the purpose of our life, which was to be in relationship with you, that we can be transformed. It is only then that we can experience the richest of life. And so, Father, I pray that this week um, we would go beyond the good and the badness scale and invite others to do the same, to live into the purposeful life that God has created each of them to live. We give you thanks in your holy and precious name. Amen.